0: So, Jay, remind me, are the Maximoff twins mutants these days? I had to check with current ex-editor Jordan White, but he says no, they are not currently mutants, at least for the moment. For now. This week. But actually, of course, that's just the 616. I mean, in Earth-127, their codename is literally Brother Mutant.
1: Wait, their code name? Do they share one and switch off or something? Nah, they merged. That's not a euphemism, right? No, it's not the Ultimate
0: Universe. Um, see, Scarlet Warlock... Scarlet Warlock, is that a Technarch thing? No, um, a handful of people are just gender-swapped on Earth-127. Oh. So Scarlet which is a dude, ergo Scarlet Warlock. Okay. So anyway, Scarlet Warlock was trying to make his mom um, on 127, that's Magneto, not Maria Maximoff, or gender swap Django Maxino- Maximoff. Anyway, um, he was trying to make Magneto super-powerful by merging her with Wolverine's adamantium skeleton. That seems
1: exceptionally ill-advised.
0: It really was. The spell messed up and Magneto, Scarlet Warlock, Wolverine, Quicksilver, and Mesmero all merged into one super-powerful glowing mutant.
1: I assume that was a recipe for disaster. You assume
0: correctly. The newly merged mutant had all their powers amped up, along with the worst of Magneto's misanthropy,
1: and not much by way of impulse control, so he pretty much set off to wipe out humanity. All by himself? Nah. That does seem like it might be a lot even for him.
0: With several hundred mind-controlled alternate versions of Wolverine. What? I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men.
1: Because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to episode 195 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest
1: superhero soap opera. And welcome to some truly glorious nonsense. We are on not just an X-Force episode, but in some ways the last Rob Liefeld X-Force episode. And it's a weirdly bittersweet moment of closure for me, because over the episodes
0: where we've been covering this, I've I've found myself growing, like, weirdly fond of, of Liefeld's art. I mean... I still don't think it's good, but it's it's like I don't know, man. It's 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 horrible and twisted and and dubious and anatomically improbable and lacks perspective. But it's it's familiar. It's comfortable. It's it's enthusiastic and it's it's awfully fun to describe um, in a deadpan.
1: Okay, so what you just said a second ago, Jay, it's enthusiastic. This is how I look at comics. If you can tell that the person involved with creating a comic was having a good time doing it or just had something they were really passionate about, the quality is certainly relevant. I mean, it's very relevant, but it's not everything. I mean, it depends on what you're reading it for. I think if I were just reading
0: through these issues, in fact, when I was just reading through these issues, I got a lot less out of them, but this is an era and a run that for me definitely benefits from discussion, from the fact that I need to find things in it to talk about, and from the fact that, boy, is there a lot to talk about in it. I may not like the art, but I really enjoy describing it. I really enjoy trying to rationalize it. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss
1: that a little bit. Well, we can miss him a little in this arc, too, because of the three issues we're going to be covering, Liefeld only draws about one and a quarter of them. At this point, he was moving toward focusing more on Image Comics, and he was basically out the door at Marvel, so his work was inconsistent. And we've certainly seen him with fill-in artists before, but it increases and increases, and then he's just gone. Well, we're talking
0: about the run that he's building on. So, should we, we? We we're talking about the art a little bit. Let's talk about the story and what we're coming into. Uh, we're going to be talking about X Force today. X Force is a new series, and it's made up of the team that sort of emerged from the ashes of the New Mutants. They are led by Cable, the mysterious metal-armed soldier from the future, who has just recently begun to be revealed as the far future version of
1: perpetually imperiled baby Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. We also have on the team, the team wine mom, Domino. She's Cable's old buddy. She's actually copycat in disguise, but that's actually, no, that's going to start to be relevant
0: this arc. Um, we're going we're gonna to finally see that hinted at.
1: We are indeed. Then we have the former new Mutants Cannonball, and the one and only Boom Boom. We've also got former Hellion, Warpath. Sharp guy, Shatterstar. And cat
0: lady, but not the kind who actually likes
1: cats, Feral. Now, Cable and Domino, they've known each other for a while, and they have a former association with a man named Garrison Kane. He's the new Weapon X, who mainly resembles the old Weapon X in that they both have the same codename, and that's about it.
0: Doesn't uh, New Weapon X also work for with the Canadian
1: the Canadian government? Uh, there is that as well. So same name, same country, and beyond that, eh, not too much. The current Weapon X is basically weaponized Inspector
0: Gadget. He can shoot his hands off his arms, things like that. They've got another former associate who is with the U.S. government. That is G.W. Bridge, who is now the head of a S.H.I.E.L.D. unit tracking X-Force down, because X-Force is fairly
1: proactively criminal, they are, and they've also been framed to be even more criminal than they really are by Gideon. They're also ridiculous. I assume that to an extent,
0: GW Bridge is tracking these guys down because he's just sort of making, they're making everyone look bad by
1: just existing. Do you remember that Monty Python episode where there was the general that just kept coming on and interrupting sketches because they were too silly and he did not approve? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Now I'm just going to imagine GW Bridge as that guy.
0: I was going to say Nick Fury, but Nick Fury used to lead a unit that was literally named the Howling Commandos, so I feel like he doesn't really
1: have a leg to stand on for the silliness. Exactly. Now, in recent X-Force issues, former simpering henchman Toad has started a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. This iteration of the Brotherhood includes previous members, Pyro and Blob, the
0: re-terodactyled Sauron, the new and cool-looking but not very well-developed Fantasia, and the super-evil leader of most of the surviving mutant Morlocks, Mask. Now, Mask is there, and so also is is Thorn, who is is Farrell's sister, who has a similar power set, because the Brotherhood reached out to the Morlocks
1: for an alliance, and the Morlocks at least tentatively agreed. Now, Toad and Pyro just sort of forget to show up in the issues we're covering, so I'm sure they're off, I don't know, playing an awesome game of Pinochle or two-player Gloomhaven or something like that. I really hope that they're actually at the dentist. Oh, seriously, because they have some major dental issues. Yeah, Toad has more teeth than any two to three people need. Now, the New Brotherhood has attacked X-Force, because why not? I mean, there's various bad blood, but mostly fighting.
0: Speaking of blood, in the ensuing brawl, Sauron managed to kill Cannonball. For real. Dead. Not an imaginary
1: story. Not a hoax but
0: definitely not going to stick, which brings us to
1: X-Force number eight. Okay, X-Force number eight is a delightful oasis of artistic glory in the middle of, well, you know, X-Force. Because while Rob Liefeld does draw the framing story, the bulk of the issue is drawn by famed Hellboy art creator, Mike Mignola. And if you're familiar mostly with Mignola's current or later work, It's really interesting to go back
0: and look at his earlier stuff. It's not his strongest work. He's he's got his style fairly clearly, but he doesn't have that incredibly clean, incredibly deliberate page composition that's going to define his later comics. And it's really odd seeing the one without the other. He's also being inked here by uh, Bob Vicek, which is okay. It doesn't serve Mignola's pencils particularly well.
1: Well, we'll get to him momentarily, because first, as the arc opens, Sauron is gloating with his refreshingly toothless mouth wide open.
0: Dead! The boy is dead, Cable! Warm blood pumping out of cold flesh! Sam Guthrie will be but the first to fall!
1: And Boom Boom is shouting for Sam to wake up. I mean, you know, they've been working together for a long time, but they're also in a romantic relationship. And Cable, as he hears this in captions, thinks to himself, yeah, it is time for him to wake up in italics, which means it's significant. It's also time for a flashback. Which is where we skip to Mignola's art.
0: This is an interesting approach. Because using, using different artists or different different art styles, and I think more recently the trend is more towards using different color palettes um, to indicate a flashback, is a time-honor technique and it's a useful one. Usually they're artists who are stylistically a little more similar than Liefeld and Mignola.
1: But, yeah, it is totally different. I mean mignola's he's he's not the same as he will be later, but he's still got those heavy blacks. He's still got that chunky, almost simple style. It's a goddamn revelation. Um, now, we mentioned that we'd love to see Mignola draw X force when he did a pin up in an earlier issue. We'd forgotten about this one because, yeah, that's exactly what we get for at least most of him
0: yeah, and i I said I think at that point as well that in some somewhere there is an earth where Mignola rather than Jim Lee defined
1: the style of the 90s, and it's got to be a really interesting timeline. For serious. Now, in this flashback, Cable, Domino, and a guy we haven't seen before, a big red guy with these, like, sort of pouch suspenders, which is certainly an interesting 90s interpretation, and the usual facial buttresses, he's with them. This is a guy named Grizzly, and the fourth person with him is GW Bridge. We'd heard it alluded to that he used to work with Cable and Domino, and in fact, yeah, we're in that part of the past.
0: And they are breaking into a Hydra fortress, not for any particularly super heroic reasons or moral reasons at all, but specifically because they have been hired by a group from whom Hydra stole a very valuable energy
1: converter. Now, Jay, you mentioned that they're called the Wild Pack, and indeed, here they are. But later, they're going to be called the Six Pack instead because the Wild Pack was the name of Silver of Silver Sable's mercenary team, and they got in a disagreement, so Cable's group had to change their name, and that really, really amuses me because Cable must have been so grumpy about having to back down on that one. Cable's a lawyer. You'd think that he'd know, you know, he'd, he'd have thought to trademark it. Eh, you know, he's busy doing other things, like being in confusing bathtubs.
0: This keeps on happening to Cable's team, too. Didn't it happen to X-Force as well?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, there was that thing where the group that uh, later on became the X-Statics took the name X-Force from Cable's group. Right. Anyway, so Mignola gets to draw these heroes fighting Nazis because Hydra are freaking Nazis, as we discussed, and Mignola does draw people punching Nazis as well. Grizzly, however, in this fight gets shot with a plasma cannon that Hydra is wielding. He's okay because he's very large, which means he's very tough.
0: And it's just fine. And it's it the banter here is fun. Like they're really well established as a team with a lot of experience working together and also that is is just nigh and vulnerable. So so cable, you know, after after Grizzly gets shot, turns to him.
1: Plasma generator. right. Yep. Standard Hydra issue twelve second regeneration delay. Right. Yep. Shake, rattle and roll. You got six seconds left.
0: So they meet up once they're inside with, with Kane, that's the weapon X with the who can shoot his
1: hands, um, and a dude named Hammer. So the banter here remains delightful. I mean, they're referencing old jobs that they've done, they're giving each other shit in a clearly affectionate but also sort of rivalry-ish way. Nasieza's dialogue is underrated, and honestly, when he has an artist like Mignola, it really, really shines.
0: Yeah, Nasieza writes team banter really well. He establishes character dynamics really well. Like we've been focusing a lot on him coming out of and then sort of trying to echo Claremont's voice. And when he moves away from that, which I think he's finally starting to do, we actually get to see his
1: specific strengths. And this is definitely one of them. Absolutely. Anyway, back in the story, the facility that the Wild Pack had broken into, it was supposed to be a research facility. You know, you would think there'd be scientists or something, but it's empty. This is suspicious.
0: It is, and um, young Kane is convinced that it's just because everyone ran away from the badasses because Kane is, is not the brightest crayon in the box. Cable disagrees.
1: That's inexperience and stupidity talking, Kane. As usual, there's a way things should be and a way they shouldn't be. This is one of those times where we're slapping shouldn't be right in the face.
0: And Cable is, in fact, correct, because as Hammer is working to get the component, which is is part of a new bomb Hydra is developing, um, there's a sudden Baron Strucker's giant monocled face appears on monitors all around to taunt them and to tell them that, you know, under normal circumstances, a villain might say, you have two minutes to get out, but no, 20 seconds. Fuck you. And I feel like under the circumstances, we don't usually do accents, but sometimes something requires bad movie Nazi, and this is one of those times. This has been a recording. I do so hope your entrails do not unduly bespoil the beautiful desert landscape. Auf Wiedersehen.
1: Oh, Baron Strucker. As a reminder, Baron Strucker is noted Nazi supervillain and father of the Von Strucker twins, who you may recognize as being referenced in The Gifted, and also being really uncomfortable every time they show up. Um, they're the characters who hunt humans for sport, whom we don't like. Exactly. Uh, Also, Baron Strucker has a Satan Claw, which I gotta say, Nazis are terrible, but the Satan Claw is a great name for a weapon. It really sounds like an attack from Street Fighter. Satan Claw! Satan Claw! Well, anyway, the Wild Pack is about to be blown to kingdom come, but Baron Strucker did not reckon with Cable's sweet-ass catchphrase, which is used right here. Body slide by six.
0: And they are teleported away and back to the
1: um, helicopter they came in from. We find out that they're working for AIM, you know, advanced idea mechanics, the beekeeper-looking scientists that Roberto da Costa, much later in the timeline, realized were publicly traded and just bought.
0: I've been rereading, or actually, I I reread all of of that run recently, and
1: God, does it hold up. Seriously. Uh, Listeners, Al Ewing's New Avengers and then U.S. Avengers runs, which sort of go right together with each other, are goddamn delightful. Highly, highly recommended.
0: He does a piece of the action, but with an extra layer of Archie.
1: (laughs) It's so glorious.
0: It's amazing.
1: So, uh, one of the AIM scientists reveals from his or her beekeeper helmet that the stolen unit that Hydra stole, yeah, that actually wasn't functional. They just built a unit that didn't do anything, figuring Hydra would probably steal it, and that would let AIM hire some mercenaries to see how far Hydra had gotten with their bomb. Hydra and AIM are traditional bad guy rivals, you see.
0: Yeah, aim is somewhat more charming, um, mostly because aim just gives no fucks. They're really just in it for the mad science, and I'm I'm gonna link to these. I keep on forgetting to to mention them when we're talking about aim. But Shingyan um, Core has done a collection of of these beautiful little comic strips of of aim employees about aim employees that I that that are not official but are really lovely and have very heavily influenced my uh, my relative affection for aim. <laughs>
1: Well, the Wild Pack reconvenes, some are annoyed at being used, but the arrest figure, "Eh, rent's a paycheck, so who cares? And Cable motorcycles off, saying that he'll find the Wild Pack whenever next time hits. And at that point, he time slides, not body slides, home. Specifically, he time slides as he is
0: riding his motorcycle off a cliff for maximum drama. Rides that wave of drama straight into his introductory narration to his destination.
1: The air crackles. Smell the ozone. Smells like home. Except I don't know where home is anymore. Maybe when you come right down to it, I never have. I bounce around, from here to there, make friends and enemies all over. But I refuse to get too close to any of them. Because if I do, they'll be dead and gone before I get home.
0: Home? I have no home. Hunted despised, living like an animal. The jungle is my home, but I will show the world that I can be its master. Wait, no, sorry, that's Bride of the Atom.
1: Uh, Do you think there's an alternate universe where Bella Lugosi lived like a really long time, and instead of getting Josh Brolin to play Cable in Deadpool 2, they got Lugosi? I'd like to think so. Also, Bride of the Monster,
0: not Bride of the Atom, sorry. Um, I I apologize to the no-doubt
1: hovering ghost of Ed Wood. I think it was called both at various times, so you're probably good. Anyway, Cable comes out in the future, the far future, and in his far future base, which is all we see at first, he's attended by a bunch of floating robots named, you know, Scott, Warren, Hank, Bobby, and Gene. So that's a thing. That is very weird. Now, we've seen implications about Cable being from the future before, you know, most recently that I can recall, him talking about guns from AIM being most similar to what he's used to, but this is the first time it's been made explicit, I believe, that he is indeed time-displaced, that he did indeed come from the future. And so what he does in the future is go
0: on a months
1: long bender, And then he gets back to work. But I love the brief look we see at far future New York City. Like, Mignola does such a good job of making it recognizable as a city like New York, but also making it clear that it's not just in the future, it is in the far, far future.
0: Yeah, future with a capital F. This makes me wish Mignola had done more
1: science fiction, honestly. Seriously. Now, after this bender, Cable's sentient computer, named Professor, tells Cable that Professor's found a new awakening. That being Sam Guthrie.
0: At which point, uh,
1: X-Force takes a sharp left and is basically the movie Sleeper. (laughs) That would be kind of amazing. Now, Cable asks if the professor knew Sam. The professor replies, You know my memory programming is faulty in regards to personal recollections.
0: A part of you was but a child, Nathan, and I was a projected energy matrix.
1: We are fortunate we survived it all. That's right, Professor is referencing X-Factor number 68, and it confirms it. Cable is Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, and Professor is Ship. Because as you may remember, Ship was destroyed in Endgame, the story where X-Factor went up against Apocalypse, you know, again. But Ship's consciousness went with the baby and and Janaskani uh, into the future. And I fucking love this. Like, it's cool that Cable is Nathan Christopher, but I think everybody kind of saw that coming at least a little bit as the story progressed. But Professor being Ship, that's rad. I love Ship, and Ship has survived. Yeah, Ship is... Uh, Ship is probably one of the oldest
0: characters in the Marvel Universe at this point, because ship has been around since ages and ages and ages and eons ago. Ship is a good and trusty pal.
1: Right. Yeah, because ship has been around uh, since it was put onto Earth by the Celestials to be a monitoring device. I just I just love this retcon. I mean, okay, yes, it's one of the more ridiculous retcons. This side of Jean Grey was actually at the bottom of Jamaica Bay, but there's a certain, holy crap, I can't believe they did that to it. It's just glorious.
0: Well, and when we're talking about a sentient piece of celestial technology repurposed by apocalypse and then converted over to friendship with X-Factor, I feel like it's much less of a stretch.
1: That is true. Anyway, about this whole Sam Guthrie awakening deal, apparently, according to SHIP, Sam Guthrie's presence is documented well into the 24th century. Sam Guthrie is one of the immortal High Lords. We'll learn more about them.
0: So... The High Lords are the same thing as the Externals, but they pretty much just get called High Lords in this story arc, um, which makes them seem a lot sillier than they even are, which is
1: already pretty silly. Right. So Cable asks the Professor to send Cable back 6 to 12 months or so before Sam's awakening, and that apparently is why Cable is in the present of Earth-616. Now, this will be retconned away very soon, but for now...
0: Yeah. Um. And it'll also be right kind of way that Sam is an external. Um. Cable's later theory will be that well, Sam's brother turned out to have a little bit of a healing factor for all the good it did him. Maybe Sam did too.
1: Who knows. Now, one theory I found on the Real Gentleman of Leisure comments for the article about this issue was that maybe Mirage, who, as you recall, is still in Asgard, used her death-fighting Valkyrie powers to save Sam when he was killed in the previous X-Force issue we covered, and maybe that led to her getting kicked out of Asgard and going to Midgard, Star Earth, which is why she was freed up to join the Mutant Liberation Front undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm sure this wasn't intended, but it's a much cooler explanation.
0: That's less a theory than a potential explanation i mean it's not it's not i don't i don't think it's something that was intended theory would be that it's supposed to be implied but yeah no it's a great idea and that would it would be cool if that were worked into into canon um cable meanwhile has has headed back um so we are we are back with him in the lifeld drawn present where sam is in fact not waking up he appears to be actually really for real dead
1: And Cable wonders, shit, what if he was wrong? What if the Professor was wrong? What if Cable led Sam to his death for nothing? Uh, Sauron, meanwhile,
0: being um, a pterosaur and therefore kind of an asshole, uh, taunts them, so Cable just straight up shoots him. Uh, Spoiler, it's going to turn out next issue that that Cable just
1: uh, winged Sauron. Womp womp. Okay, that is Naseza's pun, not mine. And that brings us to X-Force number nine, which is the last issue penciled by Rob Liefeld. He'll stick around for a little longer on plots and covers, though.
0: And, God, right on the first page, there's this thing that we've been seeing on and off where Liefeld, or possibly his anchor, draws shadows on people's faces that make absolutely no sense, and I really hate it.
1: So when I used to draw superheroes when I was a kid, um, this was around 1992, and so I just internalized this, and I would draw just these random shadows, and I remember specifically drawing a picture of Cyclops. And, you know, he's got those sort of yellow underwear over his blue suit in this this era. And showing it to my grandmother, because I was very proud about my Cyclops drawing. And she looked at the shadows on his crotch and just said, mysterious. (laughs) I mean, the muscles were probably more mysterious, but that part stuck with me. Yeah, man, that is that is the best
0: possible thing to say while looking at the crotch of a drawing of a
1: superhero. Like, just mysterious. Listeners, if you're ever confronted with this situation, remember, this is what you do. So Cable
0: takes Sam off to Med Bay, um, and everyone else just, just keeps fighting, punctuated by, by Domino giving a speech about friendship. Because Team Wine Mom... Um, and she's she's fighting, I, I believe at this point, Thorn. What did you hope to accomplish here?
1: Partnership between Brotherhood and the Morlocks.
0: How does destroying us help your cause? We're all supposed to be fighting on the same side for the betterment of mutants. Idiots, all of you, total idiots. Wasting your time, our time, fighting each other when there's so much else that needs to be done. I mean, we gotta pick the kids up from soccer practice, um... I've got to do the cupcakes for the PTA meeting. I brought home a whole stack of work. Um, Someone has to clean that enormous fucking bathtub that Cable and I hang out in.
1: And I got a whole box of Chablis to get through before morning. Back in the infirmary, Cable
0: exhorts Sam to wake up. Um, Sam does not oblige, and then Sauron shows up to be a dick for a while more because Sauron and Cable shoots him some more. Basically, like, in the background of anything that is happening in this issue, Cable is shooting Sauron, and it's not
1: doing very much. I think he forgot to turn his gun to the anti-pterodactyl setting, and so it's not really doing much. I think he just forgot to turn it on to the setting where it does things,
0: and instead it's just like one of the dollar store makes, makes big noises but doesn't project anything guns.
1: Or maybe it's not that the gun is making noises. Maybe it's just that Cable is pulling the trigger. It's not doing anything, but he's just saying "pew," and so he assumes it's working. we 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 just did the Laura Dern joke, man. Now I'm just imagining Cable played by Laura Dern, and that would actually be fucking cool.
0: Yeah, I would. I would be solidly solidly down for that. Well, then Farrell and Thorn enter the fracas. Sauron attempts to woo Feral to their cause, um, in the process implying that cats are not mammals, or at least that he is not aware that cats are mammals. So yeah, that's a thing. I am not to be your pincushion, feline, nor am I willing to suffer your violent diatribes any longer. A shame indeed, Feral, for like your sister, Thorn, your ferocity would have been of great use in my war against
1: mammalian flesh. To which Feral responds, Blow
0: it out your eye, Godzilla!
1: So Cable finally finishes
0: shooting Sauron, and it finally takes effect. Thorn, who has suddenly become anti-murder, surprisingly, is absolutely horrified by this and rips off uh, half of Cable's
1: face, revealing cyborg parts. There is a 90 degree turned double page spread to show a single panel of Cable's face with his flesh sort of ripped down to the metal on one side which we
0: already knew was there, so meh, whatever. However, it's worth noting that this issue came out in the same year
1: as Terminator 2. Cyborgs were, were very in. Well, and specifically, Terminator 2 versions of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator were in, because it just, it's, it's the same damn thing. But we don't have time to linger on, on Terminator
0: cable. Siren, Shatterstar, and Warpath have successfully taken out the blob. Um, that's what they were doing while... While Domino and uh, and Farrell and Cable were were engaging with with Sauron and and Thorn, um, Blob ended up getting away from them by just just jumping very casually off a cliff, which was actually great. It's a really Blob moment, and I actually really dig the way Liefeld draws him in this issue. Um, he's one of the characters for whom Liefeld's exaggerations actually kind of work and look like style rather than just sort of baffling lines. I completely agree, yeah.
1: Like, I think this may be my favorite blob design.
0: But he's gone. He's off a cliff. And, um, now Siren, Shatterstar, and Warpath are chasing after Mask and Fantasia, who who run in and are about to join the fray. But Fantasia decides that it's really not
1: worth the trouble and just fucks right off. Um, it's really funny. I, it's, she's just like, yeah, no, and just leaves. My character design is way too cool for you jackasses. Peace out. Now, Mask is about to follow suit, But
0: Shatterstar, acting on Cable's direct orders, stabs him in the back.
1: So there were misplaced speech bubbles in the death panel, or uh, the panel in which which Mask dies, that is, Um, and it's pretty great. Like, usually it's just an error and whatever. There's a bunch of that in this issue, because there are a bunch of panels where Liefeld draws very little,
0: very not-detailed versions of the characters, and they're all colored, like, in silhouette— and it's obvious if you're paying attention which is which, but the balloons are just all over the place. So, so
1: what happens here happens a few times in the issue. So we see Warpath using Shatterstar's "Hey, I just killed you!" mask taunt, which you know, okay, whatever. Warpath also says Zazvid earlier in in this same issue. But here, Cable gets to use Boom Boom's line, that being, "Shatty, don't! Oh, jeez! Welp, that's right." Sauron and now Mask are dead. X-Force has actually, you know, uh, risen up to their we-kill-a-lot-of-people reputation. Now, literally none of the deaths that happen
0: in this arc are going to stick. Sauron will be back in a year or, f- or so um, in X-Factor. He, he's been off regenerating. Mask is going to stay dead for a bit longer and is going to emerge
1: in Extreme X-Men to give Callisto tentacle arms. That's right, listeners. Jean Grey and Callisto, over the course of X-Men history, both get tentacle arms. Both of those stories were written by Claremont. Hmm. Yeah, they're also both, like, weirdly sanguine about it. I mean, I guess tentacle arms are pretty awesome, right? Yeah, the thing is, they're they're very clearly
0: different tentacle arms, because Jean can only control hers with telekinesis, while Callisto appears to be able to organically
1: be able to just control hers and use them as arms. Which alternate universe was it where Callisto had tentacles coming out of her eyeball under her eye patch? Because that was weird. That's the, that's Ultimate Callisto. I'm troubled by this, Jay. Like, I don't want to think about it. It makes me feel funny. I don't like it. It's, it's troubling. Well, well, anyway. Anyway,
0: speaking of confusing and troubling things, um, Sam Guthrie is, is pretty confused and troubled as he emerges... Fully healed. Not only that, not only is he fully healed, but his clothes, while bloodstained,
1: also appear to be fully healed, which is kind of a nice extension of the whole external power set. Oh, I have a theory myself for what actually happened since he was retconned to not be an external. Clearly, one of the Nuri was in there in the medbay being very, very subtle, because we do know that canonically, the Nuri, when they heal somebody, can heal their clothing. So, it's definitely that.
0: But, um, alas... The Nuri or whatever healed Sam's clothes could not fix uh, the crotch, which still looks extremely uncomfortable. And that brings us to X-Force number 10, answers and questions. And one of the answers we will never get is is why those pants are cut like that.
1: I mean, the Nuri can only do so much, I'm just saying. So, with this one, Liefeld, as usual, does the plot. Nisieza, as usual, does the script. The pencils, however, are done by someone named Mark Pacella. And, hmm, I think the artist maybe. ...worse than Leifeld's? I don't know, the proportions and the faces, I I don't like it. Well, Pacella is really clearly trying to do as
0: close an echo of lifefeld as he can. It's inked, by the way, by uh, Dan Panosian, who's gonna go on to draw the terrific X-Factor Forever series. Oh yeah, that jacket! Yeah, Leifeld derivative art is not all that charming. Now, each of the first 10 pages of this issue is split between two side stories. We've got Externals, a prologue, and Weapon X, Extenuating Circumstances, Part 3, and it's completely weird flow-wise. They don't really interact, interestingly. There's no real reason to have them parallel, and... The layouts get a
1: bit confusing. Yeah, I I don't understand this decision. I don't really either, and you could have done some cool stuff, but I guess there were a couple panels where they mirror one another a little bit, but yeah, thematically, I don't know. Now, Jay, you said Weapon X, Extenuating Circumstances Part 3, and that's because X-Force Number 7 and X-Force Number 9 had Parts 1 and 2. We decided to just sort of lump them all together here because it makes a little more sense as far as describing it in podcast land.
0: It doesn't make that much sense anyway, so we wanted to preserve what little sense we could scrabble together. So let's start with the external story. Um, this this opens with, with Gideon. Gideon is uh, Roberto da Costa's longtime friend. This this is the guy with the very, 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 very long top knot and the completely um, distinctive fashion sense. And apparently he is also one of the High Lords. He is an external. And... He was specifically grooming Sunspot to join them because he he knew that there was a High Lord about to awaken. He knew, you know, the general proximity, and he thought it was Sunspot. He guessed the wrong new mutant.
1: I gotta say, given that Sunspot just sort of had his dad randomly killed and wandered off to work with Gideon, like, having that actually be part of a larger plot makes me like the decision a lot more. Yeah, but externals. Well, okay, good point. Speaking of externals, boy, do we have some of them. They all have sort of biblical-ish names. So first, we have Saul, who sort of looks like a stereotypical Fu Manchu-Dracula hybrid, but he's got speech bubbles like Dream of the Endless from Sandman. Next, we've got Nicodemus, who has scratchy-bordered speech bubbles and totally rips off Magneto's look. I think he's kind of ripping off Saul's look as well. He's like a Fu Manchu-Dracula hybrid wannabe. And then we have Burke, a guy in a suit. Ah, yes, the venerable
0: Old Testament patriarch Burke. Who could
1: forget him? At least he's got green speech bubbles, and they have very thick borders, so that's a thing. And then we have Absalom, and he kind of reminds me of an angrier version of Tower from the Alliance of Evil, you know, the guy who could get tall. He's got regular speech bubbles, but they also have very thick... Borders. He's also just so angry all the time. These guys are so tedious. Can you imagine, like, what what do they even do? I don't know. I mean, they have a lot of meetings, apparently, and dress stupid. Do you think they, like, finish their business and then go play miniature golf or something? That would make me like them a lot more, so I'm gonna say yes. Um, I think Gideon always chooses the yellow ball because, like me, he believes that yellow is an underappreciated color and he doesn't want it to feel bad. I don't think Gideon cares about anyone feeling bad, Miles. I mean, everyone's got at least one redeeming personality trait. Maybe that's his. Not everybody. Yeah, well, fair. Anyway, so like you mentioned, Gideon got it wrong. He thought Sunspot was going to be the new external slash high lord. And he needs to resolve this because otherwise Absalom is going to like have an aneurysm or something. So Gideon's plan, he's going to activate Cruel, who is a high lord, but unlike the rest of them is crazy. You can tell it's the 90s because Cruel's name is spelled K-R-U-L-E. It's super dumb. So, Cruel will actually be kind of a big deal in one of the issues of X-Men Chronicles from the Age of Apocalypse, briefly. Mostly, he's pretty silly. And the rest of the externals like this idea because either Cruel will capture Sam, which is good, or Cruel will get killed, which means he won't be a pain in their asses anymore. Nicodemus, who is
0: the external who gives a fuck asks what'll happen to roberto turns out gideon's gonna kill him that's really all the externals have to say for themselves so uh let's go
1: on to extenuating circumstances so like we said, this was a story in three parts in x four, seven, nine, 7, 9, and 10. Not a whole lot happens, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Garrison Kane, Weapon X, has been sent north of Vancouver, I'm assuming British Columbia, not Washington, uh, to take out— It a- would be so funny if it were Washington, though. <laughs> right. Uh, he's been sent there to take out a liquor and cigarette smuggling operation from the U.S., which is kind of a weird thing to send in freaking Weapon X for— Right? Maybe, um, in Canada, the ATF is under the umbrella of Department H? Who knows? Red tape is confusing. Now, Pachella actually does a pretty good job with the art here. There are backgrounds, the faces are kind of reasonable, I don't know, maybe it's better, or maybe we got confused and it's actually a different artist.
0: And, uh, these smugglers are, are very regimented, they've all got uniforms, and then Kane uses his cyborg powers to to beat up a bunch of them, um, and comments, they're dressed a little funky for prohibition busters. Let Central Op worry about it.
1: Me, I know the limitations of my job, right? What a weird follow-up this is to the original Weapon X story. We had a story of a man being broken down to the beast within through brainwashing and conditioning and cruelty. We had bits of compassion leaking out from the scientific calculation. We had differently colored captions to tell us who was talking. And... Then we have a dork who makes weird references and wears a dumb jacket and shoots his hand off, fighting off smugglers in green suits. In the spirit of pointless nonsense, the Mutant Liv- Liberation
0: Front chooses this moment to appear. Specifically, we've got Wildside, Sumo,
1: and Forearm. And Kane fights them. And as he does, Wildside keeps calling Kane different nicknames. We have Citizen Kane, Nova Kane, Sugar Kane. Wildside. You got to work on your banter. I mean, that's not, it's not clever. None of that is clever. Kane clearly agrees because he fires his fist at Wildside
0: and then pulls off the rest of his arm to whack forearm with, which is, God, I really love this guy. He's like ultra violent Inspector Gadget, and it's never not funny.
1: It actually reminds me of the old PlayStation game, Medieval, where you played the skeleton Sir Daniel Fortescue, and if you didn't have uh, a weapon- Yes! Yes! Yeah, if you didn't have a weapon equipped, you would just pull off your own arm and start whacking people with it. Or You could throw it, and it was a boomerang for some reason.
0: I think I would like Kane much better if he had no lower jaw and could only talk in mumbles, but instead we get amazing lines like, Sometimes it pays to be Canada's version of Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun.
1: Kane, you and I remember that novel very differently. Right, because, I mean, in that, there was a guy who was uh, paralyzed in bed, and uh, he was in the Metallica video for the song One, and it was uh, kind of a questionable use of the story. Yeah, for those of you unfamiliar with Johnny Got His Gun,
0: it is about a World War One soldier who loses all of his limbs, and is blinded and deafened, and loses the ability to speak, but is still fully mentally aware. It's... It's definitely not about a hardened cyborg assassin who fires his fists at, at um, weapon smugglers.
1: Maybe this is the remake done by Michael Bay? Yeah, no, you're right. This is Michael Bay's Johnny Got His Gun. Maybe that's how it works in 616. <laughs> and there's our episode title.
0: <laughs> I was going to say that maybe this is how Johnny Got His Gun plays out when it takes place in a, in a country with single-payer health care, but no, I, I I like that much better, that in in this universe... Johnny Got His Gun is is not a Dalton Trumbo novel at all. It is just a Michael Bay movie.
1: I could dig it. The bad guys teleport away from Garrison Kane and his fearsome detachable limbs, and suddenly, Strife appears. The cliffhanger at the end of part two is this shiny, sharp man. When part three begins, Garrison Kane goes through the teleportation portal, looking for Strife. God damn it! It's part two and part three. It's done by the same creative team. You can do better than this.
0: I know I've commented on this before. But I'm sort of amazed anew every time he shows up that Strife's armor has nipples. They're very sharp, I bet. Maybe it's cold. The armor in general, like, I wonder. I wonder if Joel Schumacher read a lot of
1: X-Force growing up. Quite possible. But anyway, we get a glorious caption in Kane's pretty amazing dialect. No time to monkey around with the second bananas when Magilla
0: gorilla's hanging out. Is, is this how the kids talk, Jay?
1: I will intimidate him with my slap bracelet and see if he has the dope. Anyway, Kane beats everybody up, and Strife then appears. It's kind of confusing what's going on here because there aren't really any backgrounds in this part. I don't know. But Strife removes his helmet, revealing what we the readers already know. He looks exactly like Cable.
0: And not only that, but he he repeats, I think, a line we've we've seen him use before.
1: Even with a crystal ball, you couldn't predict the obvious, could you?
0: And Kane has seen Cable fight Strife, but this is enough to convince him that they're clearly the same guy. Which, to be fair, he lives in a universe with a lot of shapeshifters and shit. The fact that you've seen two versions of someone fight each other doesn't really mean
1: that there are actually two people. What if it is not I who am Cable, but he who is me? And what if neither of us are what we say? Think on that, Cain. And then he punches Kane out, um, which,
0: I mean, didn't, didn't he just say, what if the situation is exactly what you, th- you have just concluded that it is, but I reversed the syntax, but it's still the
1: same because addition is commutative? Maybe he's just being philosophical, you know. Once upon a time, I, Chang-Chu, dreamt I was a butterfly, fluttering hither and thither, a veritable butterfly, enjoying itself to the full full of its bent, and not knowing it was Chang-Chu. Suddenly I awoke and came to myself the veritable Chang-Chu. Now I do not know whether it was that I dreamt I was a butterfly or whether I am now a butterfly dreaming I am a man. Between me and the butterfly, there must be a difference. This is an instance of transformation. And either way, that butterfly had some sweet nipple armor. I'm just pleased I could get, you know, a quote that Legion also used into this episode. So there we go. Chang-Chu, now you're an X-Force 2. Y- you know that's that's not originally from Legion, right? Oh, right. It was just referenced there and also here. So therefore, we're as good as the television show Legion, canonically. We are absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, well, True. Anyway, Kane barges into General Clark's office after presumably getting out of the floor of the MLF base. Um, General Clark, whoever he is, is wearing an orange diving suit for some reason. I'm going to go ahead and say personal gratification. That's probably it. Everyone's just polite and doesn't mention it. Now, Kane tells Clark, we've got to activate weapon prime, which we don't really know what that is. But Clark says, no, no, they have something better they have a guy named Richter with inexplicably deeply shadowy eye sockets. That's right, Julio Esteban Richter, who we last saw searching for rain in Genosha, despite the fact that he could have just, you know, called or something, Uh, he's here. Richter is a very confused man. Buenos dias, Senor Kane. Heard a lot of good things about you, dude. Gonna be a pleasure working with you, especially if it means bringing cable down. Meanwhile, back in the actual plot,
0: X-Force, now including a revived Sam, stands over the corpses of Mask and Sauron. Boom Boom, I believe, speaks for all of us, as she said. Will someone please tell me what the heck is going on? Domino has a quick reply. Well, as usual, we won.
1: And as usual, I haven't got the slightest idea how we did it. You and me both, sis. This art is confusing. I mean, it's got some cool panel layouts, but I think I could fit my entire body inside Cable's chest, or maybe even his thigh. This is also where we learn that X-Force Headquarters has a morgue. And Warpath brings, at Cable's request, the corpses of Mask and Sauron into it. But, okay, if you're going to do an autopsy, which is what Cable requests, like, shouldn't that be because you don't know how someone died? I'm pretty sure that Mask died of Shatterstar's sword through his chest, and Sauron died of so many bullets.
0: Miles, there are all sorts of reasons to do an autopsy.
1: Oh, well,
0: okay. Uh, forensic evidence. Casual fun.
1: X-Force is not okay. Children's birthday parties. Oh man, I thought clowns were bad. So I live I live next door to a funeral home and, and we keep on joking
0: about calling them and asking if they do birthday parties. Because if the answer is yes, I'm totally gonna have a birthday party there.
1: It would be really educational. Right? Well, uh, speaking of education, Cable brings Cannonball to the med lab for some I-can-see-your-skeleton-through-the-screen scans. Like, not x-rays, but the kind of thing you see in cartoons where there's a skeleton overlaying your body scan. It's different. Uh, he is also—he also takes this opportunity to, to inform Sam that
0: Sam is a high lord and is immortal. So that's the thing now. Uh, with, with very
1: little explanation. Like, he just sort of expects Sam to take this at face value. You saying I can't die? That's crazy, Cable. Every man's got his time and place. That's the way the Lord intended
0: it. And Cable is very clear that in fact, no, Sam is an external. And the fact that Sam is an external is the whole reason that Cable is in this time. The whole reason he turned the new mutants into X-Force. And of course, that's all gonna be retconned away later, but it's very dramatic right now. Uh, yeah, and um, Boom Boom shows up to, to say hi to her, her not dead boyfriend um, and to ask what the plan is going forward. Um, Cable has it covered.
1: Tomorrow, we pay the Morlocks a little visit. Leave Mask's head on a pike as a gentle reminder to their next leader about what will happen to them if they try to cross X-Force again. That is a huge dick move. Right? I mean, the Morlocks are the outcasts among a group of outcasts. They just got almost entirely slaughtered by the Marauders. They just wanted to survive. That's the only reason they were with Mask. I mean, come on, Cable, own your privilege. God, that's such a dick move. Sam just wonders what to tell his mom, because Sam is the best. Yeah, so mom, so mom, I'm immortal
0: now, and uh, also I'm definitely an accessory to quite a
1: lot of murder. Oh, don't worry, Sam, it could be much worse. I mean, she could be watching her daughter fucking angel in the sky above her house. God damn it. That freaking story. Meanwhile, in an entirely different place, the still trench coat and fedora disguised Mr. Tolliver, a previous X-Force villain, tells Deadpool that it's been too long since her last check-in. And Deadpool makes it clear that the person he is there, he's supposed to go check-in
0: on, is Domino. Um, and he's he's gonna head back and make sure she pays in blood for stabbing him in the back. Because apparently, they're working on the same side. Mysterious. it's so easy to imagine the look on your grandmother's face and like her saying that
1: (laughs) right wow yeah so that's where we are in x-force we have officially taken six issues for x-force and the and the brotherhood of evil mutants to punch each other oh don't don't be so reductive they did also shoot and stab each other that's true, the violence was rather varied. Well done, X-Force. So, this is not a great era for X-Force, aside from that Mignola issue. It's gonna get better, but wow, uh, not a whole lot happens, and what does happen doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but still, I gotta say, it's a ton of fun. And
0: we'll largely be retconned away. Again, what you're looking at at now is something that we are all going to sort of quietly
1: try to forget happened very soon. What we will never forget, however, is our amazing listeners. Because you've got questions. Matt asks via email, Magneto
0: has always been my favorite. I've always related to the grayness of his morality and reasoning. I enjoy characters that vacillate between heroism and villainy. Do you have any favorite Magneto story arcs or books
1: that you would recommend? There are so many good Magneto stories. I'm just gonna talk about a few of my favorites here. Now, if you like Magneto's grayness, in this case, both figurative and literal, because his costume's kind of gray in this part, Colin Bunn and Gabriel Hernandez waltas Magneto series from a little bit ago is Stellar. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's all about him doing some pretty unsavory things for reasons that are at least somewhat valid. And one of the things I appreciate about the book is that it leaves it to the reader to decide what of what he does is okay and what's not.
0: Also, you know, we we talked we've talked about this on the on the podcast. This is this is something that you already know about if you've been following it, but the first New Mutant series, I think, for me is. Some of the best Magneto out there.
1: Yeah, seriously. As soon as he becomes the headmaster, I think that's my golden age of New Mutants right there. Now, if you want a heartbreaking window into the real life events that led to the uh, character's backstory, that led Magneto to see the world the way he does, Magneto Testament, written by Greg Pak, that's a look at the Holocaust and the history surrounding it through the eyes of a pre-powers Magneto. It's really rough because it's about, you know, stuff that actually happened, and there's really not any superhero, supervillain content in it. Um, I actually almost broke down reading it on the bus, so uh, maybe read it at home. But it's very, very well done, just both as a comic story in general, as a historical retelling, and as a Magneto story. Also, Jay, I know you've read more of the Utopia era. That's where Magneto joined Cyclops, right? It is, and those are those are two characters whose
0: dynamic, I think, is terrific, and who play off each other as foils very, very well and lead to some very, very good mutual characterization. Um, so the stuff that Magneto does in, in Utopia, and specifically like the stuff where he's, he brings Kitty Pryde back um, from space, for instance, is great. I also, um, while I think it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, and I, this, is, this is going to fall under hashtag controversial opinions, I think he's really interesting um, in the Bendis run as well.
1: I would completely agree, yeah. For me, that's a very logical extension of the uh, of his character arc in the Utopia era. Sanjay asks via email, my dad is approaching retirement age, and as he starts to look for things to do once he doesn't have to work, he's begun to take an interest in his son's, my, love of comics. I was wondering, are there any X-books you guys would recommend for him to start with?
0: So I'm gonna start by giving you the answer that I always give to the how do I get my partner, parent, friend, kid... relative random stranger on the street into comics um, or or into X-Men specifically and that is to do two things. First look at the stuff they like to read the things that make stories appeal to them specifically and look for an arc or look for a title that reflects that stuff so for example um, if your dad isn't a science fiction you might want to dive in with something like the Brood Saga Um, that set um, the other thing that I'd suggest is looking for something that you really love, um, stuff that you're excited at the idea of talking about with your dad, at having him have read and being able to discuss, because with something like this, that kind of passion is really communicable. I mean, I'm guessing that this is something he's interested in in its own right, but also that part of the appeal is that it's something that you his that you're passionate about and that you guys can connect over, so... Think about the stories that you'd like to hear his thoughts on and and go with those. Um, In general, with jumping on points, beginnings of arcs or beginnings of series um, are good when you can. I would definitely reread stuff you're not sure about first yourself. um, Or maybe choose something, choose an arc or choose a series for the two of you to read together. That said... Even the really confusing stuff can be more accessible than we tend to give it credit for. Because we look at this stuff, and when Miles and I talk about it, for instance, we are unpacking all of the continuity, it sounds really forbidding. But if you're not going in trying to get every possible thing out of it, it's actually pretty doable to jump in. Um, my mom, when we were working on the cable costume, decided she wanted to read some of the comics it was from. And she basically, do- she, she has read almost no X-Men, and she pretty much dove straight into Second Coming. Wow. Yeah. And she did fine. Like, there were there were things she had questions about, but on the whole, like, she she got what she wanted to get out of it. She enjoyed reading it, and she had a pretty solid understanding of it coming out on the other side. So there's all of that. Um, I also asked my dad what he thought about this because um, I, I'm, I assume that he's probably closer in age to your dad than I am. And he is someone who started reading X-Men comics because I was into them and because of the, when the podcast started. And he specifically said that one of one of the books that he loved most and that that really caught him both on, on its own and as an X-Men book was was the first run of New Mutants and especially the Sienkiewicz stuff. So you've got that recommendation as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and support at certain levels comes with acknowledgment on air from fictional characters and or forces. I suppose we'll start with the angry Claremontian narrator. Well,
0: that might have been an astute literary allusion on your own world, Apollo 11. But little did you know that you have wandered far from home. To you, Voltaire's magnum opus is a picaresque parody, sharp-witted and iconoclastic. But this earth is not your earth. On this earth, Candide is a 1991 romantic comedy about honor student Sapphire 22's quirky romance with 90s rapper Vanilla Ice. And now all of your teammates are making fun of you behind your back. And um, there's there's one obvious choice for villain thanks here. So the mic goes to the, the spiky and benippled strife.
1: Perhaps the world, trembling in fear as the mutant's liberation front hammers down upon the wicked humans, wonders at our righteous fury. Why do we channel our rage into such vengeance? The answers are clear. Homo sapiens oppress their betters, or they stand idly by as their flat scanned brethren hunt and hound those they should instead serve. But worse still, when Mike Mignola draws X-Force, Cable's children face not their arched enemies, my mutant liberation front, but instead Hydra. When Devin Tui writes of academic funding, his focus is on Havoc and Polaris and not Strife. What Eric Gibson brings to life a villain through interpretive dance. It is Apocalypse, not me. The plight of mutants shall not be ignored. And neither shall strife and the mutants' liberation front.
0: Oh, I see what you did there with Devin.
1: Um, yeah, so Devin Tui won our uh, PSA contest that we finally actually did. And he had one that was indeed about Havoc and Polaris. And it was pretty great. And you can check it out on our website if you'd like.
0: Yeah, I'll link to that in the visual companion to this episode, and the, the prize, what, what, what we did was actually actually um record his PSA, so you can hear that, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll link to it. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills,
1: New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra
0: content, including visual companions to every episode.
1: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
0: Next week, Excalibur faces off against Necrom, but is the
1: world prepared for the Anti-Phoenix? Probably not. Nobody expects the Anti-Phoenix. Its chief weapon is
0: surprise and narrative chaos. That's two. Damn, Skippy. <laughs>